Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Now, live and direct from the press box at Old Comiskey Park, it's time for When Football Was Football. Let's join your host, Joe Ziemba, with another forgotten tale from Chicago's pro football history. Let's go! Thank you for that warm introduction from Comiskey Park. And welcome to this episode of When Football Was Football. I'm Joe Ziemba. In the early years of the 20th century, before the start of the National Football League, semi-professional football teams could be found in a number of areas, including Chicago. I use the word semi-pro because the individuals playing the games were not always guaranteed that they would be paid for their participation. Written contracts were usually non-existent, and the players generally were secured for each individual contest rather than locked in for an entire season. In 1919, the Racine Cardinals, which was short for the Racine Cardinals Pleasure Club, scratched out a 4-2-2 record in the Chicago area with a roster consisting of a combination of local street players alongside former collegiate athletes. In this episode of When Football Was Football, we'll take a peek at those pioneer Cardinals of 1919, the forerunner of today's Arizona Cardinals, and the energetic teenager named Jack Glenn, who basically served as the team's general manager. It should be noted that athletic clubs were quite common in the Chicago area in the early 1900s. In the days before movies, television, and even radio, athletic clubs were designed to provide entertainment, social activities, and athletic events for the members. As such, members could attend dances, chat over a beer, or participate on numerous athletic teams, including boxing, track, baseball, and football squads. A different athletic club could be found on almost every street corner in the city of Chicago, and the competition among these clubs was fierce. It also made sense for the various clubs to schedule sporting events with each other due to both the closeness of the locations and the neighborhood rivalries. But as the years drifted by, some of the baseball and football teams moved away from the sponsorship of an athletic club and became more or less independent. This was the case of the Racine Cardinals football team in 1919, which, although still operating under the umbrella of the Racine Cardinals Pleasure Club, and we can't make that name up, began operating separately as a football organization. While still playing local teams such as the Callerton Athletic Club, the squad also lined up games with the Moline, Illinois Fans Association team and the Hammond, Indiana Bobcats. The subtle move to embrace more regional rather than local teams was now underway for the Cardinals under the leadership of manager Chris O'Brien and Jack Glenn. While Glenn was officially the paid secretary of the Cardinals organization, it was his job to assist Chris O'Brien in the running of the club 
securing players, and making game arrangements. The Cardinals were not owned by any individual at this point in time, but were still linked to an athletic club and relied on contributions from area individuals for economic support. O'Brien took care of all the major deals like arranging the schedule, preparing the field, and ensuring that the bills were paid on time, while Glenn made certain that there were enough players on the field for each game played by the Racine Cardinals. Glenn and O'Brien worked together in a partnership that was bound together by their mutual love of the game of football. Scheduling games was challenging, but ensuring that a sufficient number of players showed up was equally difficult. Games were often added just a few days before the scheduled date, while the turnstile roster of players was always in a state of confusion. And this is where Mr. Glenn came in. Glenn was just, believe it or not, 17 years old on January 10th, 1917, when his was one of the signatures on the documents incorporating the, quote, Racine Cardinal Pleasure Club, unquote, in the state of Illinois. While this does not necessarily indicate that he was one of the owners of the Pleasure Club, it does demonstrate that the management of the club held him in very, very high regard. Glenn moved from helping O'Brien whenever and wherever possible to assuming responsibilities for securing players to represent that early version of the Cardinals. In my new book, Bears vs. Cardinals, the NFL's Oldest Rivalry, I attempted to explain the job responsibility of Jack Glenn as follows. If the Cardinals would be short of players for a specific game, Glenn would be the man who would track down the replacements. Working from a small brown notebook, Glenn included names, addresses, and even those rare phone numbers for certain players. The importance of the Glenn papers, which have surfaced only recently, is that we now have some written documentation about the early Cardinals. We can see that most of the players from 1917 through 1919 lived in or near the Englewood neighborhood, but that Chris O'Brien also was determined to enlist the very best football players available on the south side of Chicago. At some point over the last few decades, the historical records of the Arizona Cardinals were lost in a fire. As such, the Glenn Papers may very well be the oldest existing records for the NFL's oldest team. And all of this was done while Glenn worked full-time at the nearby Union Stockyards in Chicago. So, how did the legend of Jack Glenn evolve? Well, a few years ago at one of the programs we presented at the local libraries on the history of pro football in the Chicago area, I met a gentleman named Pat Glenn. Pat told the story about his uncle, Jack Glenn, and the position he held with the Racine Cardinals, and I was a bit surprised that I had never heard of Jack Glenn or the important role he played with the Cardinals. Pat went on to share items from his uncle's belongings, including photos, documents, and even the Racine Cardinals armband that members of the team wore, which Pat Glenn later donated to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The story of Jack Glenn was quite intriguing, especially with the fact that he passed away at such an early age. There were plenty of stories that Pat Glenn shared about his uncle, and I was delighted, just delighted, when Pat allowed me to review and study the journals that Jack Glenn kept during his time with the Cardinals. 
They are rather small, but with the name Racing Cardinals clearly visible on each. The entries, of course, are all handwritten. Glenn listed the correctly spelled names of the players, their addresses, and even if they had a phone number at that time. This type of information is very essential to a researcher, since often the key to locating information about a person from a century ago is defining an address. Many of the names were common at the time, and often the census reports from a specific year may be missing information. But to have the correct spelling of the name along with a viable address was a researcher's dream. Yeah, I was in heaven. The journals helped me to locate more information on several players, including a few that I was not previously aware of. But next came the gripping question. How did these invaluable documents survive over 100 years? And where were they during this extended period of time? Pat Glenn was very happy to provide an answer to that question. He said, The Cardinal's material resided with my aunt, who was Jack's sister, Nani Trawler, until her death in 1987. From all these materials, the notebook somehow ended up with my sister, a Dominican nun named Sister Helen Glynn, OP. She discovered the roster notebook among some items in a drawer. My sister was a medical missionary in Bolivia for 25 years and then taught at Marist High School in Chicago for many years, but I have no idea how she ended up with the notebooks. She was in Bolivia when my Aunt Nani died. Crazy stuff, this historical research. If the Lord steps in on this research someday, other cardinal items may someday surface in my sister Helen's stuff, or Nani's. She was, and still is, a diehard football fan. From the Glynn resources, many Cardinals players from 1917 through 1919 are now identified. Some of those players remain with the team after the organization became a member of what would eventually become the National Football League. Among the key players listed in the journals were End Red O'Connor, quarterback Marston Smith, End Paul Florence, and center Bill Whalen. In particular, Paul Florence was an interesting character. He played for the 1920 Cardinals in the new American Professional Football Association, and also was a member of the 1926 New York Giants Major League Baseball team. With such stalwarts in his lineup, Chris O'Brien was pleased with the club's final 4-2-2 record in 1919. Although the Cardinals defeated local powers, the Logan Squares and the Pullman Thorns, as mentioned, they also ventured outside of the usual nearby opponents to battle with Moline, Illinois and Hammond, Indiana, with both of those games resulting in a tie. The Hammond contest was certainly interesting, since that club recruited heavily and offered its players the unheard of sum of $100 per game. The star in for Hammond was a guy named George Hallis, and that was a year before he was offered the position to play and coach for the A.E. Staley team in Decatur, Illinois. And we all know what happened after that. When various professional football teams joined together to form the initial version of the National Football League in September of 1920, the circuit was concerned with roster jumping, scheduling, and the use of college players, and you might throw in a bit of worry over betting on games as well. However, that was a year after the Cardinals recruiters prepared for the Moline game in 1919. An article appearing in the Dispatch newspaper the day before the game reported the following. 
The Cardinals will present a strong lineup against Moline Sunday afternoon. Three of the men are college students who are playing under assumed names for obvious reasons. The Cardinals appear to be slight favorites in the betting line. Although there is plenty of Moline money to be had, and the wagers will probably be made at even money when the game starts. Well, so much for the avoiding college players and placing wagers part of those concerns. While Jacqueline was continuously fine-tuning his list of possible players for the Cardinals, he also managed to keep an eye on future prospects. In a story told by Pat Glenn from before the days of the NFL draft, Jack Glenn was clearly initiating efforts to add the legendary George Gipp of Notre Dame to the Cardinals roster. Although George Gipp died at the age of 25 on December 14, 1920, he and Jack Glenn had developed a friendship according to the Glenn family legend. Pat Glenn said, My uncle traveled to Notre Dame at some point to visit with George Gipp and determine if he might be interested in playing football with the Cardinals after Notre Dame. Gipp and Jack were also said to have met at a pool hall around 63rd and Halston in Chicago at some time during or after the season. My aunt and older siblings recall seeing communications with Gipp among our uncle's papers. And personally, we hope to see those items someday as well. The team that Jack Glenn helped create successfully began the transformation into more of a big-time independent football club in 1919. In less than a year, the Cardinals would be invited to become a charter member of the National Football League and still one of the two remaining organizations along with the Decatur Staley's slash Chicago Bears. Sadly, Glenn would not see that auspicious event for surely he would have attended the meeting in Canton, Ohio when the league was created on September 17, 1920. Instead, John Jack Glenn passed away suddenly on December 29, 1919, at the age of 20. If Chris O'Brien was the architect of the transformation of the Cardinals into a regional power in the pre-NFL years, Glenn was certainly the one who made things happen. His passing was met with both shock and sadness by the local football community, as the Hammond Indiana Times reported. Independent football circles were startled yesterday with the news that John Glenn, secretary of the Racing Cardinals Football Club, had died suddenly at St. Bernard's Hospital. Glenn contacted a severe cold at a recent game of his team, and it took a bad turn last Tuesday, which necessitated his going to the hospital. Glenn was a popular lad, and his death means a vacancy in the official list of the Cardinal Club that will be hard to fill. We should mention that the football influence of Jack Glenn continues to this day Many of his descendants have dotted the rosters of powerful high school teams in the Chicago Catholic League, and several have played for major colleges, including Ohio State and Nebraska. So my thanks to Pat Glenn, Sister Helen Glenn, and the entire Glenn family for keeping this important piece of Cardinals history alive, including their help with today's episode of When Football Was Football on the Sports History Network. We thank you. And on one final note, We here at the Sports History Network enjoy sharing our love of sports history with our listeners. I've asked author Clayton Truder to stop by the studio for a brief discussion of his new book called Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. 
I was intrigued by some information Clayton shared with me recently regarding the once possible move of the Cardinals to Atlanta. Clayton, welcome. And if you would, please introduce yourself and tell us about your book and how it touches on the Cardinals. Good evening. My name is Clayton Truder. I'm the author of Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. Loserville is an origin story for the modern sports business told through the story of Atlanta in the 1960s and 1970s. Atlanta was the first major North American city to make a concerted political effort by their, by their community to become major league. And by this I mean Atlanta city leaders, namely their mayor Ivan Allen, campaigned openly to bring pro sports from the four major professional leagues, the NHL, the NBA, the NFL, and Major League Baseball to the city. And they did so by funding two taxpayer-financed stadiums, uh, Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and the Omni Coliseum. Um, getting so many teams so quickly proved to be a bit of a fool's errand for the city. The team tended to struggle at the box office and on the field in their early years to a much greater extent than anticipated, and it's a situation many other expansion cities have also found themselves in. Um, the Cardinals owners uh, play a prominent role for several chapters in the book. The Bidwell brothers considered moving the Cardinals uh, to Atlanta in 1964. They were in a um, conflict with St. Louis over the role they would play in the new Bush Stadium being built downtown. And essentially, they, they positioned themselves as considering moving to Atlanta as leverage for their stadium deal in uh, St. Louis. They ended up getting a much better stadium deal in St. Louis by getting wined and dined by Atlanta as they themselves were pursuing uh, major professional sports. I hope you consider checking out my book, uh, Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta, and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports, available everywhere now. Thank you, Clayton. And thanks to all for listening to this episode of When Football Was Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup, Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast. It's a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squires, a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on the Sports History Network, as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.